Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Cindy and Chrissy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with changing the ideals and expectations of motherhood. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about. All while hanging with your mom friends. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. We are honored to have Dr. Kristen Tully join us today. Dr. Tully is a research assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and a part of the program leadership for the Collaborative for Maternal and Infant Health at UNC Chapel Hill. I had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Tully speak at a conference last year and was blown away by her passion and intrigued by her background. Dr. Tully is a medical anthropologist who seeks to enable health by improving healthcare services over the 1,000 days continuum of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. She's interested in understanding human needs around the perinatal period of life course from the perspectives of birthing parents, infants, and those supporting them. Her research addresses topics such as breastfeeding outcomes, mother-infant safety, sleep practices, maternal health, and transitions through healthcare to establish more patient and family-centered care. The objective is to advance equity by identifying metrics for accountability and continual improvement in health systems. We got to dive into all things perinatal care with Kristen Tully, and trust us, it is a conversation you won't want to miss. We are so excited to be here with Dr. Kristen Tully today. I got to hear Dr. Tully speak at a conference. You were on a panel and I was just so intrigued with who you are and the work you do and your background. Your background was what really fascinated me. So I'm excited to talk a bit more about that today, but we always start with some get to know you questions. So first up is just a fill in the blank. Motherhood is a lot. No doubt. We were just talking about so this <laughs> before we started recording. Yeah. Comparing stories. I like that because it encompasses the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. It is. It's a lot. It's all encompassing. Very true. Cleanest room in your house. I think the bathroom because <laughs> it's small <laughs> and maybe after that, the kitchen, but that would be because my husband does it. I think, you know, there's like competing demands in the house is not the priority for me. (laughs) I hear that. That's wonderful too, that your spouse helps you in the the kitchen. That's really nice. That's true. So more space, more area to clean. So bathroom seems realistic. I'd have to say mine's probably, uh, maybe I take that back. (laughs) I don't know which could be the cleanest right now. I think mine fluctuates day to day. I don't know. I've never actually thought about that question for myself. What's bringing your life sanity right now? I think, you know, feeling a deep sense of purpose in lots of spheres and, you know, work and and family and, you know, striving to be helpful. And that feels good, you know, trying to be useful. Oh, I love that answer. That speaks a lot to the importance of that 
inner mission, I, I guess we were reading something recently that talked about that and I can't put my finger on it. Cindy, do you remember? I was it, it was, was it burnout? It was burnout. The book club. Yeah, book. it was burnout. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing it quite, quite frequently everywhere that having that sense of purpose is really important for that inner sense of drive and just waking up every day and knowing that you're making a difference somewhere. It's also in The Gifts of Imperfection with Brene Mm -hmm. Brown. Mm -hmm. So you can go and take a free little test on her website about that. And they talk quite a bit about having an inner purpose and and something that helps you project outward what you love. So It, it does just make the day so much better. Okay. What do you look for in a mom friend? I think I've been really privileged to you know, have authentic relationships with mom friends and professional life too. And I think that, you know, being open and vulnerable and true is a real gift. That's what we want. I think it's Brene Brown who talks about, you know, becoming a better human with anti-racist work. And I think that that really resonates with me with every domain. And, you know, going back to the clean rooms one of my friends, I went over there and her house was not all tidy and stuff. And I was like, oh, she trusts me. <laughs> it was like, you know, I felt accepted. And so I think that, that that's what I look for, to just be at ease and with each other and, and to really be together. That's such a good point. And I love that. I almost feel like that could become like a friend test or a friend barometer <laughs> like as you build a relationship with someone it, it is really hard to let a non-family member or a non-immediate family member into your house when it's not clean like especially if you're a type a person at all it, it's <laughs> like something you're trying to control and that's a really good point I like that <laughs> and it's so true it shifts as you get older too because if you think about when you were younger high school friends and you know if someone went to college or to university you didn't care what your bedroom looked like when they came over <laughs> or your dorm room it's more like as adults we have this different scale that we try to to measure up to so i put it on myself i even have it when my parents come over i find myself apologizing for my house not being neat and they look at me and they're like cindy just almost like someone's just going to judge me for Mm. my outer space, not being perfection. Mm. I think that non-judgmental, you know, being with people who get it is what I'm all about. And I don't have time for the rest. So I don't really care, you know, like (laughs) take it elsewhere. Like, Uh, I love it. Okay. You already are just such a brilliant woman and you know so much but what is the one thing you'd still like to learn oh I think to the contrary that my career and what's so exciting is learning how much more there is to learn and then being around people with you know different perspectives from their training you know their different disciplines and then also their life experiences and then getting you know, windows into that and hopefully, you know, doors and then being in that space together is wonderful. And we, we talk about like interdisciplinary work and what we really strive for is like transdisciplinary where this, our thinking 
and it's a lot of effort and I think takes a growth mindset to want to hear and then to actively listen to what's being shared and reflect on that and then listen more so that it, you know, you slowly can process that. We work towards transdisciplinary thinking where we shape each other and that's, that's super. And, and we have, you know, a learning lab and that's the title of it. And, you know, we strive to embody that. So it's a lot of fun. I love that. So just learning a little bit of everything and capitalizing on the amazing people you're surrounded with. That's awesome. What's the best vacation you've ever taken? I guess before kids, we used to snorkel. <laughs> my, my husband and I have been to a few places and that's like a whole nother world. Like I went in and then it sort of freaked me out, like all these fish and, and then having, you know, the paddles on your feet and that buoyancy <laughs> like floating in the wetsuit and stuff so like that was really special I studied in England for my doctorate and so we got to travel around you know like in that time so that access is so treasured but you know nowadays <laughs> um, we really like you know the mountains and and the beach in North Carolina is such a wonderful place to be it's nice to have both of those available to us too. Just when, a short drive. When you were snorkeling, did you ever just think, oh my gosh, I'm going to come face to face with a shark? Like that's always on my mind when I'm snorkeling <laughs> that all of a sudden I'm just going to turn and there's going to be this like great white shark looking me in the face. <laughs> yeah. We were in the Red Sea around Egypt and Jordan and, and stuff. Wow. And so I don't think there's great whites there, but there are lots of other sharks and my husband, um, we weren't married at the time, but it's scary looking into the the blue. Like it's like a wall, you know. When when you when you're snorkeling, it's not very deep. You feel fine, but then when you go into deeper space, then it, it's like the deep blue sea. You know, you can't. And we were in that deep space um, once, and then he says shark, and then swims. <laughs> like towards it and, and I was like what it was a it ended up being a barracuda which I think you know it's like cool but I don't know you know they don't want to bother us but anyway it was like an adventure you swam <laughs> towards the barracuda I think so I, I was oh sort of gosh. like what is I'd be like scrambling up yeah I'd be like leave me out oh my goodness that is a good story uh thank you for sharing that what do you like to do on a Friday night? You know, we spend a lot of times outdoors. And so we look for a lot of creatures. I don't know. I think you are in Raleigh and I'm in Durham. And we have a lot of skinks, like little lizards, <laughs> like a lot around our house. And of course, lightning bugs and, you know, weird, cool things like stag beetles and, you know, best beetles in the logs. And so like, we have a like little trail around here and we like to explore and take care of things and then gently let them go. <laughs> Do you have some entomologists on your hands? Isn't an entomologist a, a bug studier? Yeah, yeah. And the, the Raleigh, we call it the Raleigh Museum, but the natural history in downtown, they have some really cool things that exhibits with that too. We used to frequent, you know, in the pre-COVID time. What are you reading or watching right now? Well, I 
you'll get a theme from me, children are, <laughs> and so, you know, Disney Plus is, <laughs> uh-huh. and you know, the, there's a sweet movie, Luca just came out, that was a lot of fun, so things like that. I still so haven't sweet. watched that one yet, but it's on my list, maybe I'll, I'll do that this weekend with Kira, that'll be fun. How do you picture your empty nest days? <laughs> Uh, it's hard to envision. I think, you know, right now I've just moved out of the baby phase. <laughs> so like, now, now we've got kids. And so, you know, I just hope they're, they're happy. And so are we, <laughs> I, I imagine doing much of the same, you know, trying to support each other and doing this work too. Yeah. It's funny when we ask that question, it's like one of two answers. Like <laughs> I have it entirely planned. This is exactly what I'm doing. Or, I haven't really thought about it because my kids are just so all consuming. <laughs> so that's awesome. Well, thank you. It's been great getting to know you a little bit more and getting behind who you are in your profession because you are a medical anthropologist, which in and of itself, when you tell people that, it sounds really cool. And we can't wait to hear more about what that means. But as a medical anthropologist, you've taken on maternal care and the fourth trimester in a really big way. Your research and program leadership with the fourth trimester project and the collaborative for maternal and infant health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is a clear demonstration of your passion for maternal health care. What led you to this line of work? And can you tell us a little bit more just about what exactly your profession means as a medical anthropologist? Sure. Thank you. And it's so nice, you know, to have all the different roles valued and to to really work to integrate them. So anthropology is the study of people, you know, of people right now in different settings in the U.S. and around the world and people through time and people in relation to other species and, you know, thinking about what that means, for example, to be human and going through, you know, this special phase of life, like, you know, pregnancy and birth and postpartum and it matters. It matters for every reason, health outcomes and the process, you know, we remember how we we felt um, and that shapes, there's a photographer and her work is called, I think it's, you know, birth becomes us. And I think that's so clever and so insightful because, you know, it reflects our society and um, we, we feel it, we feel it, I think forever. So it's a real privilege to try to shape these journeys to, you know, be better and <laughs> better meaning, of course, safer, but really what we're getting at is wellness. And um, Dr. Joya Career Perry of the National Birth Equity Collaborative talks a lot about, you know, justice and joy. And I think that too is such a critical, you know, North Star that, that the whole community and there's, you know, a lot more attention around this and people have been doing this work, you know, for decades. And I think what's really innovative now 
is that we recognize how important, you know, the community groups are and the, you know, the midwives, like the, the, the people with birthing parents and, and with families and like really supporting them. And so I think that's what we collectively at UNC and, you know, other groups in their leadership, we really try to change the system of care. And that means like, you know, the clinical practices and protocols, but the really bigger picture is our thinking about it. And like, if we were centering moms and others and how we think about it, then, you know, for example, instead of thinking about screening and referral, we might think about flipping that to normalization and resources. Like, it's like, who is our center of, of, and when we're thinking about doing things, then where's that coming from? And so I think that, you know, I hope to be contributing to that, like, whose perspective do we prioritize um, and, and to shape things around them? And if clearly that should be the, you know, the, the mom and her key supports. And what led you to this line of work? It, it all sounds so beautiful and amazing and definitely what we need. I'm just so curious on how you got to where you are. Sure. Yeah, that's fun to to reflect because I feel like, you know, it's so, you know, I live and breathe this and then like, how did it get to be so intense and so wonderful? But I guess, you know, when I was an undergrad and I went to the University of Notre Dame and, um, you know, I think liberal arts education is a wonderful privilege because then you are explicitly exploring different fields and what those offer and what fits with you and, you know, your personality and your interests. And so, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do at all, just, you know, always like trying to be a good student and then pursuing. And, but when I was a freshman, I heard that there was a really great teacher. And so I was like, okay, great. What does he teach? <laughs> and that person is Professor James McKenna. And he's a professor of anthropology and he's since um, transitioned from Notre Dame. He's out in California now, but I was so lucky to, you know, be there and to learn and to learn of him early. And then, then I was hooked. <laughs> and so he was a pioneer in thinking about um, breastfeeding and sleep and moms and babies as dyads. And that means, you know, they're, they're interconnected and they, how we function only makes sense in relation to each other. And, you know, breastfeeding is a good example of that with lactation physiology and infant sleep patterns and infant, you know, abilities and things. And so I took, you know, every course that he taught then and worked there for, you know, two summers and fellowships at the uh, mother baby behavioral sleep lab and I guess the the thing that I learned first was how policy and clinical recommendations they you know reflect the science and also science reflects the questions we think to ask and the way we go about collecting things and so 
in, I think it was, you know, 1992 or the early 90s when the American Academy of Pediatrics shifted from recommending that babies were put to sleep on their stomach, prone to the back to sleep campaign. And that change in recommendations dramatically reduce infant death, sudden infant death syndrome, which is the absence of a reason, you know, after thorough investigation. So these you know, relatively rare, but obviously clearly immensely tragic things, you know, our biology and therefore our health is shaped by our, what we do. And what, what we do is driven by how, what we think is appropriate and healthy and also what we're able to do in our constraints and our settings and things like complicated. But you know, it's like, well, why had they said something and then something else? And so like when you think about breastfeeding, including in the night, um, if a baby's going to be able to nurse, then when they are, it's called breast sleeping, you know, like sleeping right near the breast, then they would need to be on their backs to have access. And so, you know, putting them on their stomachs, that might contribute to like longer and deeper bouts of sleep. And that is, you know, easier for parents and parenting, as I said, is a lot, you know, like I live that, but that's not necessarily what's most appropriate for infants. And so that's what really got me into, you know, mom, baby as couplets and the family, you know, of course, as a triad and a bigger whole, like why do we do the things that we do? And what we do in the US is not, you know, in, in anthropology, there's this term called weird. It's like Western, you know, something industrialized country and like the acronym is weird. And so that's funny, you know, and that again, it's like, who's, who's, who's the norm or, or what are we thinking of as like the, the model? And I think often we have a lot to learn that would benefit us from others. So anyway, I just started studying that and then continued, <laughs> you know, and then that's evolved into, you know, sleep decision-making and breastfeeding factors. And then sort of the more you go, you, I, I realize that what we do is a function of what's around us. So the access to information that we have, how that information is constructed, right? And who gets that, how it's processed together. And then how, you know, birth facilities, hospitals and birth centers, how they're set up and how you, you know, journey through them. So lately, you know, we've really been working on changing, hopefully, a little bit of the culture around how we think of, you know, postpartum and having that fourth trimester perspective, which is that we are just as dependent on each other after birth as during pregnancy, but it just looks different. And so there hasn't been enough, you know, widespread recognition and support of people. And in fact, it's been like a cliff, you know, you have a lot of intense you know, monitoring and assessments and information leading up to birth. And then for moms afterwards, it can be and feel like nothing. And that's, you know, totally unacceptable. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a big piece of why Cindy and I 
went down the path of founding her health collective. That closely actually aligns with another question that we wanted to ask you. The fourth trimester project clearly discusses the aim of your project in five distinct areas, establishing more equitable healthcare systems, shifting the cultural norms and assumptions, actively supporting the health goals of all parents and families, preparing healthcare professionals to better serve new mothers. And I feel like you've, you've already touched on all of mm-hmm. those just a little bit in everything that you've talked about so far. Um, and then the fifth one is helping build villages of resource and support. And that's a big part of what her health collective is and does. Thank you to the sponsor of this episode and our fall initiative sponsor, and just one of our beloved Her Circle Studio partners, Total Row Raleigh. This is a rowing class worth getting excited about. Total Row classes are rowing centric, making them low impact, total body, and effective. With small classes and certified coaches, their program offers a local community vibe with professional quality. Every class is scalable to any age or ability, making total role classes available to anyone. You know, we've gone to a couple of their classes now and I just love it. It's so much fun. I love that they have no mirrors anywhere in the studio. There's no focus on body image. Instead, everything revolves around good form, gaining strength, listening to your body, feeling powerful, and most importantly, having fun, which is something I do every time I've gone to one of their classes. Yes. I love how they use empowering lingo during class that makes you appreciate the body that you're in right now and what it's doing for you, rather than having you focus on an ideal that you're hoping your body will eventually look like. Absolutely. Be sure to check out Total Row Raleigh and discover a better way to row. Actually, we would love to jump to the fourth one, which was preparing healthcare professionals to better mm-hmm. serve new mothers. Mm-hmm. Because out of all of them, when you you think about that, that seems, well, these all seem like huge undertakings, but that one in particular just seems like massive, a massive undertaking to completely overhaul a system in a society where we are so entrenched in our way of doing things, something like our healthcare system where we're, we're very attached to, you mentioned referrals and our insurance protocols. How, how are you working toward accomplishing this task? How is the fourth trimester project working on this? Yeah, well, first of all, in communities. (laughs) And just a shout out to, you know, my colleagues and friends, Alison Stubbe, Sarah Burpees, Kimberly Harper, Suzanne Woodward, and and many others on the fourth trimester, and then in in related projects, and then, you know, people across the country. So we're trying to lead with resources, and to do that in an open access way. And so like, that's, I think, a part of our core values that I'm really proud of and also doing that in a way that is, you know, in any funding and support as we navigate these. And that's also compliant with the World Health Organization code of marketing and breast milk substitutes. And so, you know, it's a complicated space. So collaborating as researchers and clinicians and, you know, recognizing that our experience as mothers is a strength too. It's not something to hide. It's something that, you know, it's just 
you know, our perspective and this isn't about us, but it, I think helps build empathy when, you know, if I've experienced the trauma of the NICU and, and I remember words that were shared with me, then when someone else shares their story, then I can, I feel that, you know. So we have some like clinic documents. So, and we have those on new mom health, such as like for a postpartum visit, we have a pre-visit form so that patients, moms could indicate more clearly their priorities for the visit. And I drafted on it, you know, language that healthcare is a resource for you and ongoing. And as your needs change, we're here and we value you. And I think you say that multiple times in this you know, session how I think, I think framing and giving language for people to then say in their own words and, and, and fits with their workflow and clinic, but, you know, we cannot just hand someone a form and ask about their mental health or ask about their diaper need or any of, you know, the social determinants, which are driven by structures and policy. And again, whole legacy in this country you, you can't ask them about you know the context of their lives and then expect people to just tick, tick the box and to be honest because you know how might that information be used and so there's decision making that goes on and when you ask about their pain too and i'm talking about like physical pain after giving birth and you know it's not comfortable like um for for anyone and some people are they withhold how they're feeling because they don't know if they're going to be perceived as you know seeking medication or when we hear over and over people are worried that those they love could be taken away you know, their babies or, and people with their immigration status, like these are systems that can harm you. And so being transparent and doing that proactively is, uh, is an underlying thing with all the specific documents and, you know, tools that we provide. So we've got like a list of things that, and we've been working with clinics across the state of North Carolina to think about those together and refine them. I also participate in, there's, it's called UNC Health Care Redesign. And so with the protocols and across, in this case, hospital facilities, like, you know, what is each group doing and making sure that everyone knows the best practices and has that sort of standardized care and, and talking about it and we try to raise that standard so that we make sure to incorporate all the evidence-based ways to support people. And, you know, when we work with hospitals, there's, you know, what, what is being done and then there's what should be done and how do we bridge that to get it closer together. And, you know, a, a big part of it is the workforce. So you you, you need safe staffing levels, you need social work embedded, you need 
clinicians to know the, the team around them so that they can do those warm referrals and demonstrate respect for each other too by not just saying, oh, well, you know, you might benefit from, you know, counseling, which I think we all could, like, I, I think that should be the norm and, and like positive coping strategies. I don't know anyone who couldn't like strengthen their, again, you know, their life, not just motherhood, but that with that. And so, you know, we asked like, how, how common does something have to be to we just provide tools for that? instead of, you know, having, again, the approach be, all right, you know, let us know if you have a problem or call me if you have something. And like, that's what I think humanity and healthcare is. It's like, well, if one out of three people have unmet diaper need or 85% of people with NICU experience have PTSD or other like really life altering experiences, let's just take care of them. And so, you know, we're working on a book on postpartum care for clinicians. And so I think we try to be useful and, you know, like right now, like here's a document you can use and, and let us know how we can improve that. And healthcare systems, we want to integrate doulas. And, and then, so there's a lot of policy too, because they should be covered. These should not be, so like when we, think about equity and having that be one of the, then that means too that they should have a living wage. This should not be a volunteer system. Like we should demonstrate these services matter, the people for whom they're available and including interpretation services, you know, like you matter. And so these are here because they're clearly helpful and this is the standard you know we expect you to use them it's your right to use them so i know that was long but you know we're working in lots of ways no i absolutely love it and something that you said that really resonated with me was really i guess just the concept of treating every individual that comes to motherhood as a unique person. They have their own story and their own background. And everything you said, there was this underlying current of just humanity, uh, treating each other as humans and trying to understand a person's story and where they come from and meeting that with empathy and compassion, you know, and, and recognizing that, yes, a situation and a, a health issue might be plaguing a small percentage of people, but they still need that support and that help. And that still warrants a shift in the system so that they receive the treatment that they need and deserve. So everything you just said resonates, but there is this underlying current of, for lack of a better word, humanity. It, it just, yes, you spoke to my heart. <laughs> so if we know that some people don't have a higher education, and we know that many people don't have reliable internet access, then if we center, you know, those who are more marginalized and oppressed, that's what we mean by then making sure we don't just give everyone links, right? We, you have to have, I think there's a huge role for technology and um, we have to recognize that the default or like what's the right balance between offering printed things and with images and videos and so and so we want to 
make that be the standard. And if it's clear enough for, you know, eighth or fourth grade or whatever reading level, then it's going to be comprehensible to others as well. And so if we are not addressing disparities explicitly, then we're perpetuating or increasing them. And so we think about that a lot, how to um, be a part of the solution. Dr. Tully in, well, Kristen, because now we're on a first name basis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in 2017, you and your colleagues published the fourth trimester, a critical transition period with unmet maternal health needs in the journal of obstetrics and gynecology. You brought together mothers, healthcare providers and other stakeholders to explore what families need most from birth to 12 weeks postpartum. Through that research, you found that four major topic areas emerged. Can you tell us a bit about those findings and did any of the results that you found surprise you? I'll have to pull up what, what the four things that I wrote, but I can just certainly speak to, <laughs> I mean, wrote with Dr. Stevie and Verbeese, but you know, there's a mismatch in what matters most to people as they go through the postpartum period and what services are available. And I mean that with regards to clinical care and so what's the content of the postpartum visit and how is that structured? When is it? And since that publication, now the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology with Allison Strube's leadership has recommended that postpartum care be more ongoing, uh, comprehensive, and with a visit sooner. <laughs> and so there's a lot of work to implement that, uh, including here. But, you know, we heard a lot about people feeling the need to present themselves in a certain way to be taken seriously. And we heard that it's hard to find good information. And then that was the catalyst for us then developing newmomhealth.com and saludmadre.com. That was in direct response to the mom sharing that, you know, Googling is uh, like, so first of all, not receiving it through, you know, their healthcare system. And so then they're going, you know, to, friends and online, which I think will always be the case. And that's also very valuable hearing other stories and thinking how that makes sense for you or not. But, you know, we shouldn't have to wonder if something's evidence-based or what. And also, so that it's not like scary or overwhelming. <laughs> and so when we created those sites, we did that again together with moms and clinicians so that the formatting, the color, the tone, the length, and things would be directly responsive to what was helpful from their point of view. And so I think another point that we published then was how change in outcomes means that we need to change the system and that that takes, you know, change in reimbursement and financial incentives. There's a whole, you know, world of the business of, of health and most of that's not very encouraging and so you know we need to restructure it so it's easy to do the right thing for all involved. 
Absolutely. You have spoken a great deal on the importance of advancing equity by identifying metrics for accountability and continual improvement in health systems. What is your vision for a more equitable healthcare system, particularly when it comes to maternal care? Yeah, well, part of it is that we need to have access and then resources to act on, you know, patient-centered outcomes. So it's not just if people are discharged and if they go back to the emergency department or, uh, well, of course, and not have severe complications or even mortality. So, you know, those things are the, the floor of what we collectively hope to shift. But we need all involved, including, you know, potential patients to know, like, at this facility, this proportion of people, for example, have wait times of this, you know, that they feel seen and heard and loved in the words of Dula, Chanel, Portia, Albert. And we need to know that in a timely way, you know, just say at least each month, like not years later. Um, and so we need clinicians to know that, for example, when they file a report about, you know, a safe report or things they see that could be strengthened, then they need to know that that matters, that their effort is recognized and that something's going to be done about it. And so I think there's a lot of promise with these disparities dashboards, and I'm not talking about by patient characteristics, although knowing people's outcomes disaggregated by their race, ethnicity, language, and payer status, so like what type of insurance, there's persistent deep disparities in those, and so that is important to break down but I'm talking about process measures. So like, I wanna know what proportion of Spanish speaking moms have an interpreter when they're in the hospital. And I wanna know how ready they feel to be discharged. And, you know, we're investigating how much people knew who they could call and how much they thought that would be useful. You know, so like these like engagement type things, I think it's really important to systematically collect for the reason of strengthening them and doing that through resources. We're not, we don't just want to say like, do better, right? We want to understand the context. And again, I think a lot of that goes back to staffing. Those seem like those would be much harder metrics to gather. Is that true? I think that there's a lot of you know, we could utilize text messaging. We can have little kiosks in hospitals as you're leaving. Like, at, you know, we have these at airports or we have libraries or stuff like that, or hotels. Like, there's ways to know how people feel. And yeah, you also need a team to organize those and to share them and to drive the quality improvement. And I guess the the point is that if we want outcomes to change, then the practices have to change. Otherwise, like in a change in a meaningful way. And so, yeah, that's work. And I, I don't take this lightly. And 
but we can do it like as, as moms and as women and, and like we can do hard things. Right. And there just has to be the will. And I think people see the unnecessary suffering and they live it too, obviously in different ways. And so what, what could be more important? Nothing. Absolutely. I, very much applaud the, the, that is such a massive undertaking. Like when you think of the healthcare system, it's just in general overwhelming. So I applaud the work that you guys are doing in that, in that regard. Absolutely. Chrissy and I, over the years in our profession before starting her health collective, and then now we've engaged with many mothers who have stated that after giving birth and throughout their parenting journey, they felt neglected by health, by the healthcare system. The women's health experts of her health collective, they engage with us on countless detailed discussions, as well as our community on changes that need to be made in order to affirm the importance of a mother's health and happiness. We'd love to hear your insights on this topic based on your personal and professional experience. What changes need to be made in order for a mom to feel seen, to feel understood and cared for during the fourth trimester and beyond. I think I learned this from Dr. Joya too. Like we collectively have built these systems and so we can, we can rebuild them. Like it's not set in stone. And so that's encouraging. Like, and, and there are a lot of practices that do things well and it shouldn't be up to you know your zip code or your ability to effectively shop around to have access to those so what we need to do is scale what's working and there's a lot there already a lot of our moms in our community and that listen to the podcast they are passionate about being involved in the community and making a change where they, where they are able, you have access to some really amazing stakeholders and resources and information, but for an everyday mom that was looking to make an impact on driving sustainable solutions, when they're not a part of an influential establishment such as UNC, and they likely don't have the support of influential stakeholders, how can an everyday mom take part in this drive for change in maternal care? Well, first of all, I love to connect. <laughs> you know, I think that my job is, is listening and, and elevating voices. So, you know, we are together in that. I think, you know, being at UNC is a great privilege to just share, like a channel, you know. And on a like really practical level, the people sometimes are sent, they're called like these Prescani packets with feedback. And I do want to convey that those are read. And so like when you are asked for feedback, when you get a text um, or if you get this packet in the mail, and I obviously have thoughts about how, uh, you know, how that goes. Um, but taking the time to, um, communicate what it was like for you, then those are read and acted upon. And so that's important. And um, I had a recent mom share with me in a focus group, like she said, 
you might ask why I didn't advocate for myself more during her fourth trimester, during her postpartum care. Um, and she shared that she's an attorney and that she uh, advocates for others as a profession. She said that, you know, poor postpartum care is like a riptide pulling you out and then with waves repeatedly crashing on you. And that's how people drown. So I think that sharing real stories is incredibly powerful. And I think more and more people are listening. Yeah, I think that that is the one thing that we, we all can do is share our story because that is the one thing that will let others know that we're not alone on this journey. And that's the one thing that we hear repeatedly is how alone these new moms feel. And you're not, you're not alone. Thank you very much for sharing that, Kristen. Thank you. Honest conversations are mm -hmm. truly, truly transformative when you mm -hmm. hear other people sharing what they have, have gone through and uh, it, it definitely can change things. And our, the experts that we engage with on a continuous basis support that. You've supported that. We just had a round table where that was also brought up about how much having honest conversations, how they're imperative. So thank you. I just want to affirm that we are all experts in our own way. Like nobody knows this better than each, each of us. And that should be respected. Absolutely. So true. What has been the most challenging lesson or shift for you in your motherhood journey so far? Like personally? Um, oh, well, just sharing stories, just sharing yeah. that last story that you shared was just wonderful to hear. But yeah, we'd love to hear anything that you've, any hurdles that you've had to, had to mm -hmm. uh, overcome. Yeah. Well, I think this is emotional and <laughs> you can, you can hear that. You can see it when we're on Zoom. <laughs> and I think that's good because that's real. And, you know, breastfeeding in particular is like my greatest accomplishment because I think I mentioned, you know, I have NICU experience and the trauma around that need for that level of care and that, that uncertainty is a hard way to start. And, you know, a lot of people sadly experience that. And so for, for those moms in particular, you know, anyone with added complexity to what's inherently challenging and hopefully also full of joy. And, you know, we need to be proactive with, with them and to train, including in simulation and with honest feedback with colleagues and with, you know, timely patient feedback in a way that people aren't scared to say how it went because they're going to see you again. <laughs> and like, we need, you know, meaningful metrics and you know we've been studying how to make that happen because when you do have someone who recognizes you know how much healing there is to do and, and helps you and I think just saying that like framing it as healing transitioning and going into new roles and identities and that's sort of what we publish like that's happening and sometimes when we have you know 
these obstacles or these changes in our stories for how we would like it to go or how we envisioned it, then having, when we say a village, you know, we mean that as like your healthcare team. And when we say team, we mean also the front desk and the check-in. And if so, if I'm late, it's a, you know, it's, you're here now, we're going to take care of you. <laughs> like, uh, or, you know, we understand and right now we need to reschedule or like, just like recognizing what it takes to just to be there and to engage. And then when we think about it together, to know that, you know, critiques, um, you know, in our team and with different groups and with different works and programs that sort of thinking about that and offering thoughts that shows our love, it shows that we care and that we want to be collaborating to, to strengthen it. Having that empathy, that consistent empathy towards another person is extremely important, regardless of, you had mentioned from the person that checks you in to the doctor that works with you, just making sure that they all see you as a person in your individualized case or your individualized experience rather than a person that they they see lots of people throughout the day. So rather than just part of their workload and something to check off their list, but to really engage and interact and know that person is important. And that's hard if they have 15 minutes. And I think, you know, and so many of my, you know, best friends and mentors are clinicians. And I think they all go into it to serve and then we need to make sure that their environment equips them to take care of people how they would like. And having the ability to rely and support staff when needed. So you had mentioned doulas. There's now an upsurgence of health coaches. I'm actually a certified health coach. People that can pick up where the system might not allow the other professional to engage for longer periods of time is truly important. Definitely. Kristen, what message do you think every mother should hear? I guess, you know, you can do this and, and you are doing it. Absolutely. Day by day, right? Because <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing us back. <laughs> it Wonderful. is. Thank you so much, Kristen. It is a joy to hear you speak and to learn from you and just to see your, your insights. Um, you've, you've committed so much of yourself to this space and to hear you speak about it. You, you can see the passion that just runs through everything you do. And we're so grateful to you for taking the time to come speak with us and to share some of your, your insights from your long career in, in this very important space. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Dr. Kristen Tully has such a wealth of knowledge and is so passionate about improving postpartum care. You can't help but be inspired when listening to her. Here are our top three takeaways from our discussion today. One, there is a serious need to shift our approach to postpartum care. Dr. Tully discussed the need for care to be more ongoing and for it to start sooner in the postpartum period. She mentions the onslaught of care we typically receive during pregnancy and the almost immediate end to that care once baby is born. 
This is something I absolutely noticed and felt deeply in my own postpartum period. She mentions the importance of providers like doulas and midwives in this process. The need for trusted resources and adequate care, adequate care in this often challenging phase of life is essential and will take a huge shift of so many aspects of our system of care. A transformation of this magnitude relies on everyone involved from providers all the way to patients who need to take on the role of self-advocate. It also requires that everyone have access to data to understand exactly who is being impacted, where, and to what degree. Two, having empathy, a consistent empathy towards another person is extremely important. From the front desk nurse that checks you in to the doctor that works with you, it is essential that they all see you as a person, that they see your individualized case or your individualized experience, rather than just seeing you as another case file in a long line of patients they will see that day. Really, it comes down to having a relationship with your provider so that rather than just being a part of their workload and something to check off their list, they've engaged with you on a human level. That can be really hard when all the doctors have are 15 minutes to spend with you. Dr. Tully mentions that so many of her friends are clinicians and that she believes they all truly go into practice to serve. At this point, Cindy and I have become friends with a number of clinicians as well, and we would agree with that statement. Dr. Tully stresses the need to make sure the environment equips providers to take care of people how they would like and that they have the ability to rely on support staff when needed. Three, there is no doubt poor postpartum care is devastating. It can drown people. Dr. Tully believes sharing real stories with other moms is incredibly powerful. This was an important theme discussed in our last episode with Kim Hawley of Strength Through Story. Because of platforms like social media and different support groups, more and more people are listening to the stories that are being shared. Dr. Tully says, I think that is the one thing we all can do. We can all share our story to let others know that we are not alone on this journey. That's the one thing we hear repeatedly, how alone these new moms feel. Even many seasoned moms still face this desperate feeling of loneliness. I know in my own experience, I have felt so utterly alone during many parts of my motherhood journey. And I had an incredible support system between my mother and my partner, but there was still this sense of desolation and panic and loneliness that plagued me. That experience was a big catalyst for launching our supportive community for moms, Her Circle. Every mother deserves to be lifted up in community during every phase of her motherhood experience. This is too important to get wrong. Please remember, no matter what you are facing, you, my friend, are not alone. Thank you for listening to this important conversation today. Hi, five friends. We had so much fun with you. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave a review. We love hearing what you have to say. Until next time, stay true to you. Thank you.